This is an oral history interview with Bill Lacey for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the Institute's offices. Today is Wednesday, June 18, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Bill, let's start out with um, what led you to become involved in politics. I got in politics, uh, Brian, uh, at a pretty early age. My first memory of, of politics and public events was the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1961. Was it 1961, by the way? It was, I'm wasn't pretty it? sure. Yeah, okay. Um, sorry about that. Um, I went, my dad was in the state legislature in Tennessee, and I got to go see President Johnson speak in about 1968 or 1969. I remember my dad was, uh, my dad was no longer as a Democrat, and uh, in 1964 I asked uh, if I could uh, go downtown to get to the Republican Party headquarters in uh, Cookville, Tennessee, where I'm from, to get a Goldwater sticker, and he made my he made mom take me down there because he was a Democrat and had Democratic aspirations and didn't want to be seen going into the Republican headquarters for a Goldwater sticker. And then he was in the legislature. I got to see President Johnson. It was kind of a natural progression after that. I started writing columns for the uh, school newspaper, debating. Red William F. Buckley followed that. And then wound up being very deeply involved in politics uh, and, and the conservative movement in college, uh, and then went to D.C. And so I had about a 20-year career there in D.C. doing mostly political strategy, political campaign management, working for people like Ronald Reagan, uh, President Bush uh, 41, um, Fred Thompson, and of course Senator Dole. Um, coming out of a Democratic background, uh, what did you account for your early right-wing uh, swing? Well, I, my, my mom was mostly a Republican, and her, her family were mostly Republicans. And, and, uh, but Dad was always very conservative. And, of course, the South at that time was extremely Democratic, but they were all very conservative. And so you know, I just consider myself sort of ahead of the curve on the South swing towards uh, the Republican Party. Uh, which, uh, you know, was solidified back uh, really starting in the 68 presidential campaign, uh, 64 presidential campaign and continuing on uh, into the future. Was that 64 what brought you to, to Washington or, or not? No. That no, well, I was, I was in 64, <laughs> I was 10. So uh, I, I would like to argue that, I would like to argue that was the case, but no. No, the very first thing that brought me to Washington was in 1977. Um, I had had a lot of friends who were in Washington and wanted to uh, uh, go up there and work because I wanted to be involved in campaigns or something. So I just decided I was going to move to D.C. and after school, I went up there, got a job right off the bat uh, and wound up uh, after doing two years with, uh, with an excellent uh, a mentor named Bruce Everly who was uh, a direct mail fundraiser mostly. Uh, and development guy uh, wound up working in Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign. Mm -hmm. 77, that was, uh, that was right after Watergate and all. The Republican Party was still trying to sort of reestablish itself, I guess. Oh, yeah. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. What was it like? Uh, I mean, I thought it was a wonderful time f uh, for us because most conservatives thought that 
uh, President Nixon had not done a particularly good job for uh, for the party or the country. And uh, I remember, uh, distinctly remember, that at one point, uh, National Review Magazine, which was headed by Bill Buckley, uh, just publicly withdrew their support from the president. And not that that really affected in any way, but to me it was a fairly dramatic way to say, uh, we don't accept the way he is governing. So. From our point of view, the 70s were actually very exciting because Ronald Reagan had run for president and almost uh, had won a miracle comeback against uh, President Ford in 76. Ford had lost, Jimmy Carter was elected. Jimmy Carter was already struggling by 1977. And, um, you know, it was a good time because you could see that things in our country were really beginning to noticeably change, that the conservative movement that kind of the Goldwater-Reagan piece of the party was really starting to, to, to coalesce and starting to gain strength and momentum. And, uh, you know, obviously that's what happened with the 80 presidential campaign. So you went to work for the RNC at some point. I worked for the RNC in, um, in actually in 1984 and 85. And I was asked to go over there by uh, Ed Rollins and Lee Atwater, who would be the management team for the president's re-election campaign, uh, to go over there just to make sure that the RNC's political operation was, you know, working closely with the president's re-election campaign. So my notes are in error. I thought you had been at the RNC in the 75-82 period, but not so. Uh, in 75, I was still in school, so. Right, right. I don't know where I got that, but anyway, I apologize. Um, so what about your awareness of Bob Dole at this point, and where did he, where did you put him on this political spectrum you're describing? Uh, obviously, I was aware of Bob Dole. I think any Republican uh, is aware of Bob Dole at a very, very early age. I can't really tell you, uh, Brian, the time that I would, become aware of him, but I was very aware in college and would have known essentially who he was and because he was the chairman of the RNC, he was very deeply involved in the early stages of Watergate defending the president. And um, um, so I was aware of him, but I didn't really get to know him until, well I didn't really get, I didn't get to meet him until sometime in the early 80s. And, and uh, I had a couple jobs in the early 80s. I was a, a deputy director at the, in, the, in the campaign uh, shop at the National Republican Congressional Committee and, and went over to work for uh, Ed Rollins and Lee Atwater in the White House political office as Lee's deputy in 1982. And it was sometime around that time that I first actually met Bob Dole that I can recall, and uh, we were both at a, uh, I was representing the White House at a big uh, Republican Party regional, uh, Midwestern regional event at Mackinac Island in Michigan, and Senator Dole was there, and uh, I met him, and uh, that was really the first time I remember physically meeting him. The first time I really got to know Bob Dole was in 1986. And um, I was sorting out what I was going to do. I was, in the, I was the political director for President Reagan at that point. We were, of course, in our last uh, term. And I was sorting out what I was going to do in the 88 campaign. And my inclination at the time was to probably work for uh, then Vice President Bush because Lee Atwater was running his campaign and I was very close to Lee. Uh, but 
as much as I really liked and respect the vice president, uh, I didn't believe him to be, you know, a genuine conservative like Reagan. And so there were, there were some nagging doubts. And I was very interested in Bob Dole. And the reason I was always interested in Bob Dole was because I have always thought him to be a superior leader. Now, there are those, you know, who would argue that Bob Dole is not a traditional, genuine conservative, and they're probably right. But, but like President Bush, he comes down on most side of the issues, uh, you know, from a more conservative point of view. So the way that I actually got to know him and start working for him was through an individual named Don Devine, who originally, a very conservative movement guy, was originally a professor of political science at the University of Maryland. Um, and I'd worked with Don on the 80 Maryland Reagan primary campaign very, very closely. He was the campaign chairman. I was a campaign director. And I had a lot of respect for Don, and we got along very well. And he was actually running Dole's political action committee, which was being used to, to kind of you know, look at the possibility of, of, well, was being used to move Dole around the country, help Republican candidates win races. But at the same time, we were kind of looking uh, towards the possibility of Dole, you know, seeking the presidency again as he had in, uh, in 1980. And um, um, the bottom line was that uh, Don knew me, thought, thought that uh, I would be a good person to be his deputy over there. Uh, he had been head of OPM during the first uh, a few Reagan years. And, um, and I never really had, I had always admired Bob Dole a lot and knew him as a war hero, but I didn't really know him personally and didn't really know what he was like and, and really didn't know if I'd feel comfortable supporting him because of, you know, he wasn't kind of a movement, traditional Reagan Goldwater conservative. So Don asked me if I was interested in the job. I told him I was, and he, he, he wanted me to do it. And, um, but I had to, to be interviewed by Dole. And so I did a list of, and this is funny because I'll have to t give you a little context after I describe the story. I go to the senator's office. It was, the meeting was in the majority leader's office. He had this huge office set up in there. And he would rarely, at least when I was in his presence, I almost never sit, saw him sit at the desk. He would always sit with his guests at, uh, you know, kind of in a seating, sitting area. And uh, he went over there and, you know, made small talk at first and then asked me some questions and then said, I'm sure you've got questions for me. And I said, yes, Senator, actually I do. And I showed him my leather portfolio with my legal pad in. And I said, I've got about 30. I said, is that okay? He said, go for it. And so we sat there and we did that. And he says, by the way, that reminds me of Elizabeth. She's really well organized, too. And he sat there and talked with me and answered questions. I asked him questions on a bunch of philosophical issues. I never judged anybody on one issue, so there was no one answer that would get him ruled out. But I wanted to see how he would respond to me on you know, some things that were really important to me. So I asked him about abortion, but that wasn't going to be make or break. And I asked him about his views on on uh, being president, on running a campaign, just and, and then on specific policy things. And we wound up sitting there an hour and a half, and I thought, you know, this is kind of neat. I got to ask him every question I wanted, and he and I seemed to hit it off pretty well. Now, I didn't know at the time 
But I was in his office a lot over the next several years, um, both in conjunction with the 88 campaign, uh, his 92 re-election campaign, and the 96 presidential campaign. When I sat there with him for almost an hour and a half, I had no clue how he operated. I learned over the next 10 years that the way he would operate was he would rarely be in a meeting with, with anybody, even his colleagues, for more than 10 or 15 minutes. And he had the amazing and uncanny ability to run four or five meetings at a time, and he'd had the right staff person in there to ensure continuity, and he would wander from place to place to place. And the guy has a, a Elizabeth Dole once told me, and she's so so right. He's got like a a laser beam focus. I mean, I mean, he really can get down to the crux of any kind of an issue immediately. And and after I saw all this that would go on in his office every day, day after day, from the moment he arrived to the moment he left, it really amazed me that he sat there for an hour and a half and he answered all those questions. How do you account for that? I think he was very extraordinarily serious about the 88 campaign, and I think that uh, he felt that I was young, that I would be a critical part of that, that uh, I think, and, and this was not a, I wouldn't have thought these things necessarily at the time, but I think looking back in retrospect. And I also think that even though he knew Don knew me, I had a reputation around town of as kind of, you know, I wasn't going to pick sides in conflicts. I was there to do my job, and I didn't have a personal agenda or anything. And, and I think that over time he definitely learned that that was kind of my style. And, um, but, but maybe he sensed that in me at the time. I don't know. I'm confused. Were you interviewing him, or was he interviewing him? It was both ways. It was clearly both ways. And uh, and again, like I say, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't know the man, and I didn't want to be presumptuous, and I wasn't because I'm a very respectful person. But I was kind of like, you know, preparing to commit a couple years of my life and a lot of hours and effort to him, and I felt it was my prerogative to ask those questions, and you know. As I said, at the time, I didn't think that I was being treated any differently than he would any other meeting, but later on I found out an hour and a half with him uninterrupted was, uh, was rather amazing. <clears throat> we had a lot of confirmation of that uh, in, in this collection, oh, history sure. collection. I'm sure. Uh, so what was the outcome then of that meeting? Uh, the outcome was, you know, go back, talk to Don, and, you know, we'll see what we can do, and I wound up working for him. Before we get into the 88 <coughs> campaign, um, you're mentioning Lee Atwater. Yeah. Um, tell me what it was like to be working with him and as his deputy and so forth. Um, Lee Atwater was a fascinating guy, um, very fascinating. He's really not what his reputation was. Uh, he's really not, I mean, he's, he, he played hardball, but he was, he was, you know, that wasn't his only approach to things. Uh, he could usually outsmart most people, and uh, people he couldn't outsmart, he would simply outwork. He worked incredible hours. Um, he was a wonderful mentor for me, and um, uh, because he taught me a lot about dealing with difficult situations, because I'd never had to go through many difficult situations. I remember one time I was all distraught and went to his office to get advice because. Uh, some uh, state party chairman or something had called me up and said, well, you know, we sent this 
invitation to the president um, for our event, and we need to know right away if the president is going to be able to come. So you're going to have to give me an answer. And I was like, you know, the guy was laying the pressure on pretty good. And Lee, in his own way, kind of explained to me how power works. And he says, he says, you got to understand, you know, you're in the catbird seat on this. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, he thinks he's higher up the food chain. And these are my words, not least. He's higher up the food chain than you are, but you're actually a lot higher up the food chain than he is. And he says, let me tell you what to tell him, and I promise you it'll work. I said, you promise me? He says, yes, I promise you it will work. You go back right now to his office. You call him, and you tell him, John or whoever his name was, if you have to have an answer today, I can give it to you. So I did, and, and he said, and then he told me what to do. So I call up the guy and said, John, how are you? If you have to have an answer today, I got the answer for you. And he said, oh, great, what is it? The president will not be attending your event. He says, what do you mean? The president will not be attending. You said you had to have an answer today. If that's the requirement, there's your answer. So I've, I've met your need. He said, well, you know, I don't really have to have an answer today. Can we keep the invitation? So you get the idea there. And he taught me so many things like that that I had never dealt with. You know, I had gone from the Congressional Campaign Committee where you're taught to think of, uh, we were taught to think of congressmen as kind of little gods because they were our constituency and that's the way we should look at them, to the White House where in one fell swoop they went from being, you know, gods to being guys that did favors for you because you worked for the President of the United States. And that was quite an adjustment, especially for a really young guy. From the perspective of the White House while you were there, uh, did you pick up any sense of what Dole meant to the White House or what relationships were like and so forth? Um, yeah, but you know, not a whole lot in all honesty because we were in the political office. The political office in the, uh, at the Reagan White House, it was the first time the White House had a, quote, political office, although everything that we did had been done by people before. They never called, created a special office to do it. So we were involved mainly in scheduling the president, picking campaigns that he would visit, uh, fundraisers for campaigns and state parties, supporting the national committees and their role and all of that. Obviously, though, you could see that uh, Senator Dole and the president were working together sometimes, were not working together other times, and, uh, but there was very little. Our, our mission in the political office was to... Um, uh, was to help all Republicans. And the Reagan White House is extraordinarily good about this. They really took a very different view than I think, than, than I have read that the Nixon White House uh, took. Their view, generally speaking, was unless someone did something egregious, that they were a Republican, this is a big tent party, there's room for this guy, and we're gonna, we're gonna help him out. And so we really helped a lot like of the moderate and liberal Republicans out just as much as we helped, you know, uh, the conservatives out. So, uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of that. There was a little bit of that, but not a whole lot of that. So I didn't really have that, the responsibility of lobbying members, although I was pulled in by the legislative shop every now and then to help with somebody I knew particularly well. But I also got to um, connect with Dole. You know, we were talking about, you know, when I met Dole and everything, and, and as I tell you this stuff, I kind of remember more, but... Um, I also one day 
I wanted to build a better relationship with Bob Dole. And so somebody told me about this woman who was his right hand, uh, and her name was Joanne Coe. And she was supposed to be very political. So I remember one day, and I believe this was probably in about 80, I think it would have been like 83, that uh, I had Joanne over for lunch in the White House mess. And that was the first time I, I got to know Joanne. And she, she and I had, from that point forward, just, uh, uh, she was a remarkable lady. We had a relationship, you know, where we could call each other and talk to each other about stuff until she, well, basically until 1997, and I kind of lost touch with her after that, and then she passed away five years later. Um, but uh, she was a very interesting character, too. Do you want to uh, give me five adjectives to describe uh, Joanne Coe? I admired Joanne Coe so much because she was a woman who made it in man's world. And, you know, she, and she made it the old-fashioned way. And that, so the, the adjectives would be tough, fair, loyal to a fault to Bob Dole, uh, loyal to a fault to her friends, and um, the fifth one would be relentless, unstoppable. I mean, she was like a freight train. And when, when Bob Dole had her assigned to do something, it was going to happen, you know, no matter how many bodies had to be buried or what. And um, if you convinced her that something was good for Bob Dole, you know, it would happen. And um, she never, the, and, and I would, there was one, one other thing I should point out, she never had a personal agenda that I ever saw in all the years that I knew her, uh, never once. And, um, you know, she was an interesting lady. In dealing with her, did you have to sort of feel like you needed to, to have your shield in place as you went before her or, or not? I never felt that way. Um, I think I, it's, I mean, in life there are people that you meet and you just, you really like, and you understand they have flaws maybe, but you don't really care, you just like them, and they do things for you and you do things for them. And then there are people that, you know, you don't really ever feel comfortable around. And she seemed very, and I mean this in a positive way. She's a very simple person, and I kind of consider myself a simple person. I mean, I knew what her agenda was all the time. It was always Bob Dole, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every year. That was her agenda. And there, I mean, I don't know what I could tell you about her other than that. The only thing I know is she was very close to her parents, and they were quite elderly, and she was close to her daughter. And, uh, gosh, I, can't, I don't know that I could tell you anything about her else about her personal life. I think her, you know, 90% of her life was Bob Dole. And so no, I never felt any reluctance to go to her about all kinds of stuff. In fact, she was usually the best sounding board when I had to deal with a senator on a difficult topic. Were there other uh, similar characters uh, on the Senate side? Or was she somewhat unique? No, she was unique in that respect. and. Uh, she was, and I would describe her as being the person who was Dole's uh, kind of political, financial extension. You know, obviously the senator, and you've heard a lot about, you know, this from other people who are far more knowledgeable on this stuff than I am, but 
people like uh, Bob Lighthizer, uh, Rod D. Arment, uh, uh, Senator Dole's longstanding chief of staff, uh, Sheila Burke. Uh, those folks were extraordinarily important in, in the overall scheme of things. But again, I'm looking at everything for kind of from a more limited perspective, from his campaigns, his fundraising, those kinds of things. And so Joanne was always kind of the first, you know, was basically the direct link to Dole on everything like that. You know, I mean, I never felt obligated to go through anybody else on political type stuff, although we'd try to, you know, include Sheila and whoever was appropriate in a lot of that. One other, from the perspective of the White House question, um, when Dole was elected as majority leader in 84, I guess, to take over in 85, did the White House have, among those candidates, a favored candidate? I wouldn't have known about that. Okay. It, um, as a matter of fact, I don't even believe I would have been at the White House then. I would have still been at the RNC. I came back to the White House when, uh, uh, that would have been actually in the, uh, after the election in 84, so, and I was at the RNC until early uh, 85, so I just, you know, I don't, I, my guess is they probably did, and to be honest, it probably wasn't Bob Dole, which, which I would have said to him is all the more reason you should support him because the guy is independent, is going to do what he thinks is right. So let's talk about the 88 campaign. Then. Sure. What was your role and so forth? I was the campaign director. The way it was conceived is that uh, Bob Ellsworth would be the chairman of the campaign, uh, would provide the, the kind of you know oversight and gray eminence, and, and I would be kind of the day-to-day -day chief operating officer. and. Um, uh, it was something I had always wanted to do, and uh, even though I was really well trained for it, uh, I pretty quickly found out I was probably in over my head because we had so much to do and so little time to do it and all. And um, Bob was great to work with, and Bob Ellsworth, and uh, uh, but he and I were just beginning our relationship too. And you know, it takes a while to sort sort through things like that. And, in many cases, I've found in my experience, campaigns are often decided by how quickly chemistry is created within a campaign. Lots of them don't create chemistry. Ours clearly did after a while, but it took a while to do it. So it, uh, it, it was a tough campaign. And then, to make a long story short, and I'll answer any specific questions that you have, but uh, um, there was a feeling, I think, that the senator had, which I probably would have agreed with him at the time and probably would would say in retrospect I was wrong on that they needed a heavier person to come in and take charge and and ultimately they recruited Bill Brock to do that and then he came in and, and there are much better accounts than this this interview of this but he basically came in and ripped apart the campaign and rearranged everybody's role and at that, that point I became a vice chairman of the campaign for planning strategy and re strategy planning and research and um, it took me out of the day-to-day -day and gave me the chance to do one of the things I'm really especially good at, which is planning and reading polls and, and uh, those kinds of things. But, uh, uh, you know, overall, in retrospect, uh, Senator Dole and the campaign would have been better served, I think, if the original team had been in place. How big a team was that original team? You mentioned the two of you. Oh gosh, there were, you know, I mean, we probably had 40 or 50 people on staff at one point. 
Uh, Kim Wells was deeply involved, uh, Mari Will, uh, then Mari Mossing was, uh, was our communications director. Um, it, was, it was a pretty filled out team, but you know, we were going up against uh, the Bush uh, uh, steamroller that Lee had put together, and it, it, was uphill from, uh, it was uphill from the very beginning. Did you and Lee have phone conversations or chats during this period? Or? Uh, we actually, before I took the job, uh, after, and I'm jumbling the chronology on you, Brian, but after the, uh, after the uh, meeting with Bob Dole, when Don Devine uh, offered me the job over at Dole's Pack, Campaign America, I called up Lee and I said, I need to meet with you. And I don't think I called him up. I think I actually went over and met with him. So I went to the Bush Pack to meet with him. And I told him what I was thinking about doing and, and in essence, asked for his blessing. And um, I think he was stunned because it was, you know, he perceived me as being somebody that's very close to him, which I consider myself close to him. And I think there was a perception that I would be, you know, going to the Bush campaign at, at some time. And um, he asked me a bunch of questions. And at the end, he said, well, Lacey, he said, I've seen you do some pretty stupid uh, things since I've known you, but this is the stupidest but if you want to go do this, you have my blessing and my full support. So I did it. So um, what was your strategy during that first period in the 88? What was sort of your focus, you and Ellsworth? First, we had to get just the infrastructure of the campaign put together, which is a huge undertaking. And um, Bob... Bob was a very wise person, was, was kind of out of touch with, uh, with how things were done at that point in time. And, and I knew that, but I was young and probably had not learned to delegate and gather strong people around me uh, uh, as well at that point. And um, so I think the first piece of it was just getting an infrastructure going. And the second was just trying to create a sense of momentum. Uh, but we raised uh, quite a bit of money, and the money creates a sense of momentum in a campaign. And so our basic strategy from the very beginning, uh, Don Devine had a strategic concept, which was kind of what we, we kind of modified it, but he had this kind of lesser Antilles strategy, the idea being that there were a lot of these little tiny contests going on early in the process that if you cherry-pick those and won a few of them, you can get enough momentum to build your credibility. But it, it, it became very clear that we, a simple strategy was required. It was just a, what, what is kind of the classic breakthrough strategy against a formidable uh, frontrunner. That is, you have to score early, and then you've got to uh, turn up the heat someplace really, really, uh, really high and see if you can pull it off. So we always knew that Iowa would be very strong, and we hired a guy named Tom Seinhorst, who was a Chuck Grassley guy, who is probably, probably without a doubt, the best political organizer I've ever worked with in my life. And um, uh, Tom went in and organized uh, Iowa in an amazing fashion, and we wound up winning there. And uh, that propelled us on to New Hampshire. Unfortunately, at this point, the, the Brock folks had taken over the campaign and had basically spent the cam campaign into bankruptcy. And... Uh, um, had uh, created all kinds of ill will with all of Dole's supporters everywhere, and 
And, um, you know, we got narrowly defeated in New Hampshire, as I remember correctly. Uh, it was a combination of things. It was a combination of a tax ad that, an attack tax ad by the Bush campaign that got on at the very end, a combination of snow, storm that kind of crippled our campaign. And uh, it was a situation where uh, Bush made a remarkable comeback in a very short period of time. And um, basically, we didn't know it then, but it was over then. We got swept, I think, on Super Tuesday, and it, you know it was all pretty much over by that point. A lot of people talk about the failure to get a response ad on the air <clears throat> in New Hampshire to the Senator Straddle campaign. What's your take on that? My take on that is those are probably people who don't know how that's done. If you go back and you look at history, it's actually recorded in writing in several places that that ad, I believe, only got on the air on the, Manche on the Manchester uh, station in New Hampshire. It didn't make the air in Boston. And the only way they got the ad on the air was uh, John Sununu, who was deeply involved in the Bush campaign and was governor, basically called up the program director or the advertising director or whomever at uh, the station there and said, uh, uh, you, you're going to have to put this ad on for me, and just insisted that it go on the air. This was after the books were closed, so theoretically it was not even possible for the Bush campaign to get the attack ad on the air. So anybody says that our, the failure to get an attack, uh, to get a response ad up, doesn't I think probably doesn't know really the history of of, of that, unless my memory is incorrect. On was that. there an effort made? There was, a, there was actually a couple of attack ads made uh, to Bush, and uh, I know the, 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 the Footprints in the Snow ad was one of them. And I'm struggling to remember if that one actually aired or not, but uh, uh, there, were, there were a number of ads like that that were thought through, and everybody knew that stuff would come. Uh, but again, and, and, and to be honest with you, I'm, I, you know, I didn't like what Bill Brock and his folks did. I thought they really tore the campaign up, but I honestly don't think they were, I don't think there was anything they necessarily could have done. I'd have to go back and look at notes and look, maybe like read some of the stuff that was done to get my chronology straight, and I probably should have done that before today. How do you account for uh, Brock and company's miscalculations or the direction in which they took the campaign? I think they were from a, a previous generation. Uh, Bill Brock had been extraordinarily successful as the U.S. Senator to run the Republican National Committee. I had a lot of respect for him, um, but they had a different point of view about things. I remember one of the very first times I started wondering uh, about it was when we were doing a regional workshop and one of our press secretaries had encouraged our 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 local organizations to build relationships with the media. You know, there was the old Nixon style of dealing with the media, which is you stay away from them and you never talk to them. But during the Reagan years, there was a really, you know, there was a very different, conservatives developed a very different perspective of the media. It was kind of like, you, you know, you've got to learn how to work with them or you'll never get your message out. And so that doesn't mean you you aren't guarded and that you don't closely, you know, make sure you put everything in, in its appropriate context, but it means you don't avoid them either. And he, he pulls me aside after this woman says this and says, wow, your, your, your staff is telling the, the volunteer, you know, the, the 
county and state chairs to deal with the press. And I said, sure, Senator, I mean, this is, you know, that's the way we did it in the Reagan White House, and we did it at the RNC and everything. He said, oh, I just, I don't, I don't like that idea. And so you begin to say, see things. I think that they decided that, and I don't know why, you'd have to talk, and well, you did talk to Bill Brock, and I'll, I'll eagerly await his interview, but uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if it was a matter of perhaps not having the faith that their orders would be executed. Uh, I don't know if it was the fact that there was kind of a, there was kind of a, you know, friction that developed pretty quickly because of the way they came into the campaign and asked a bunch of goofy questions and, in essence, conducted an inquisition into how it was being run. Um, it just got off on a bad foot and it deteriorated from there. And it got so bad that the famous Kim, the story that Kim Wells undoubtedly said in his interview, did you do the interview with Kim? Was the old uh, uh, live long and prosper, you know, we'd go down the hall and when the Brock people weren't looking and we saw one of our allies, we'd say live long and prosper, avoid the Klingons. And that was the running joke that ran in, uh, uh, that ran in uh, for many years. I still hear that from Kim from time to time. You're describing a, a sort of difference uh, in tactics or approach to politics. What I've also heard and read a lot about was just a misuse of funds and... and oh, yeah, I said that they bankrupted the campaign. They just, uh, again, they just paid astronomical sums. We'd done everything. We'd spent a lot of money, but, but we had saved a lot of money, too, on that campaign. And uh, I've always been rather cheap when it comes to campaigns in terms of staffing and in terms of upfront costs because I always believed that the bulk of a campaign budget uh, should go into voter contact. And it's very different at the presidential level because not as much of that can go into voter contact. But you still want to save a lot of that money. They came in, and again, they kind of took what I called, and again, a lot of them were from a previous political generation. And Bill Brock was a terrific organizer, and I had enormous respect for him, and I still do for that matter, as a senator and as a groundbreaking chairman for our party. Uh, but at the same time, they were from a more organizational kind of uh, discipline, and I think the world had changed. It was certainly not where we are today with the, in the information age with you know 24-7 coverage of politics in the blogs and on the cable TVs, but it was very different from what it had been when they were running campaigns. A lot of those guys hadn't been in campaigns in 10 and 15 years, and I think they were really out of touch. It's interesting, though, and it's kind of hard to believe because you always assume that Republicans know how to take good care of the pocketbook. Yeah. Well, it was not the case in that situation. Now, their argument would be, you know, just so that, I mean, their argument was not irrational. They just said, you guys haven't done all these things. Why haven't you done them? And we said, we made conscious decisions not to spend the money to do that because we believe the money should be used to do other things like TV advertising, direct mail, stuff like that down the way. They took enormous exception to that. So see, every when you say there's tactics and there's money, nah, they're, they're intertwined. You know, the tactics drive the use of the money. They wanted to do things tactically different, therefore they wanted to deploy the money earlier, use it in different ways. Uh, and we, you know, most of the people who had been there before vehemently disagreed with that approach. Looking at that whole group, 
the, the newcomers to the campaign. Um, do you think they ever felt culpability? No, I think they were so confident in their own judgment that, uh, that they felt it was basically uh, too far gone by the time they got in. And having just gone through a campaign where I would, in essence, say it was too far gone by the time I got into it with Fred Thompson's campaign, it was just too late. It wasn't that it was too far gone, it was too late. Um, I think they would say, well, you know, it was, you know, it was, things had not been done and we had no choice but to make them happen. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that's a legitimate difference in point of view. Uh, I think in retrospect, if you look at contemporary history in the Republican Party, a strong front runner has not been dislodged uh, since uh, Dwight Eisenhower was nominated over Taft. And, um, uh, and that's a horse of a, totally a horse of a different color. And so uh, I, I think that as you go back, I think it's a miracle that uh, we were able to win Iowa and get right to the verge of victory in, in New Hampshire. And then I think basically after that, the window closed and it was all over. I think Bush was the presumptive nominee from the beginning. It would have been very difficult to have defeated him. Just like in 96, it was impossible to beat Dole for the nomination. Talking about this campaign and its operation and whatnot, of course, the person we haven't talked about yet is Bob Dole himself. Mm -hmm. and sort of where was he while all of this perturbation was going on? Senator, in that campaign, Senator Dole was, of course, uh, functioning as Republican leader. And um, really, one of the challenges, and, and I respect him for this, but I also say it, it makes it very difficult. It's essentially, he was doing two full-time-plus jobs at a time. Um, he was being the Republican leader in the Senate, and he was fulfilling all of his responsibilities there, and he was being uh, a candidate for president. And um, what that did is it basically meant that the way I would say it is I think he probably did his Senate job extraordinarily well, but we didn't have very much time for, it, for him to do his presidential job. And that was always a, uh, you know, that was always a challenge. And it, it's hard for anybody to focus on doing two things like that. And, you know, you look at people who are running now, John McCain, um, Senator McCain, Senator Obama, Senator Clinton ran for, you know, a year and a half each. And uh, I'm sure they made most votes and everything. But the Senate's very different now. They're in session about three days a week usually. And uh, they were in session when, when Dole was the leader. They were in session for four and five days, as I remember it, almost every week. Just made it very difficult. Made it very difficult. He didn't like to practice speeches. Uh, it's very diff very difficult. One of the problems that Bob Dole had in both '88 and '96 uh, is Senator Dole came up at a time of retail politics. If you go out here and you listen to one of these displays, and, and this never dawned on me. I I knew it was something like this, but until I heard his words, I never really fully understood this and for really felt comfortable in this judgment. There's this one display out here where he talks about how uh, when he first ran for Congress in 1960, he drove all over the district and went to every farmhouse he could. And when he was out around at night, if there was a light on, he took that as an invitation to go in and speak to the people. 
And if you ever see Bob Dole interact with individuals, it is totally different from the way Bob Dole intera interacts with a TV camera. It's just, it's, it's just totally different. And in retrospect, I think he is a politician of a retail age who just never quite got into the TV age, per se, really until after he was a candidate in, in 96. Because very clearly, once he was free to be himself, you know, when he appeared with Leno, when he appeared with uh, Letterman, when he went to the, the White House to accept uh, um, uh, the award from President Clinton, uh, he was himself, he was funny, he was engaging and all that. And I think that was always a challenge in both 88 and 96. So after the letdown in New Hampshire, where, where did Bill Lacey hit? Uh, I actually headed down south and worked with uh, Pat Brock, who was Bill Brock's brother uh, down there, and a guy that uh, I'd helped Pat get into the campaign named Bill Dalton had been a, uh, a regional director for me at the Republican National Committee when I was political director. And I was down there for a few weeks, and then after Illinois, uh, I was summoned back to D.C. and told that, you know, everybody, most everybody except a very small number were going off the payroll. And uh, I said, are you telling me to leave or that I can stick around and do my job and I just won't be paid? And they said, well, we'd love for you to do the latter. And I stuck it out to the end, so, which was very shortly thereafter, shortly after Super Tuesday. It was Illinois. I don't remember, again, the chronology that well. So then what, where did you go? This would have been 1987 and, um, no, 1988. Uh, I decided it was time to start my own firm. So I went into business for myself and went out and started looking for clients and opened a, a small office. And um, um, to go back to Lee Atwater, the day after the, uh, uh, the day after Bob Dole withdrew, uh, Lee Atwater called me personally and said, well, sorry about your guy, but that was the way it was always going to be. And George, our current president, who was actually had an office next to Lee and was working with Lee on his dad's campaign in 1988, um, uh, George and I would like for you to come down and meet with us because we'd like you to take a big role in, in, the, president, in the vice president's campaign. And... Um, so I wound up running California, so I had to kind of put my business, suspend my business almost, and uh, did most of my work then for the Bush campaign and for the RNC for the rest of that year, and, uh, and then really kind of got back into it in 1990. So what was it like working with George W.? Um, that campaign obviously was much better organized than the Dole campaign. Um, and it was really it was really good because uh, uh, in California they had a team that California is a different world in politics and those of us who are kind of East Coast people um, usually don't grasp and understand and the Californians intuitively know that and they resent us and so Lee's mission was to figure out how to put his person in that he could count on who could get along with the Californians. And so, you know, one of the things I said that I was kind of known for in my time is not having a personal agenda on things. So 
I was a person that Lee called upon to try to fit that need. So, uh, so I went out there and, and dealt with Governor Duke Majin and all of his folks who were responsible for the campaign out there. And to make a long story very, very short, we all got along wonderfully. And that's largely because my the way I approach things, I don't usually have answers. My job isn't to come in with answers. My job is to come in and find answers. And so you find answers by asking lots of questions, not spouting a lot of opinions. And so we just went in and found a lot of information out, did the research, did a real quick survey of the state, put together a campaign strategy that everybody liked, got it signed off on out there, sent it to Bob Teeter, who was the director of strategy for the campaign. Teeter loved it, absolutely loved it. So did Rich Bond, the political director, so did Lee. And from there on, it was basically a matter of execute. The vice president we saw on a pretty frequent basis. He came out multiple times. Um, and it was always wild because that's the only time I ever saw like motorcade stop you know, traffic in California. That's a totally different um, scene than seeing a presidential or vice presidential motorcade stop traffic anywhere else in the world with, you know, like eight or ten lanes of traffic that just shut down. And it's, it, was, it, was, it was a fascinating, eye-opening experience. And uh, Bush won in California. Yes, he did. It was actually the last time a Republican presidential candidate carried California. And what was crucial to the plan that you came up with? I mean, what were some of the main strategic? Well, the, we called it the four states of California strategy. In essence, I'd gotten with some, some political and demographic experts, and they had kind of sold me on the notion that if you look at California as a piece, you'll get yourself in big trouble because it's, it's, it's really a country. It's its own country. And they totally sold me on that notion. I actually thought it was brilliant. But but equally to that, I thought this is a this is a this is such an easy concept to sell. You know, this is just an easy angle to sell to people. And when I say people, to sell to the media, to sell to your leadership, to sell to campaign back in D.C., this is just, just this is obvious. They're going to think it's genius because what you do is you basically take this huge, totally unwieldy state that. It's so hard to run a campaign, and you basically say, okay, look, we're not going to run this like a state campaign. We're not going to run it like you run the campaign in Delaware or, or uh, Oklahoma or Tennessee or Kentucky. We're going to run this like you run a national campaign. And so, in essence, we divided into four nations based on the voting characteristics and the demographics and everything in those areas, and everything fell into place from that. It was really quite remarkable. And you had no uh, no problem adjusting to being uh, a person working for a person who had been your opponent for... No. No, there is, uh, and it's interesting because since I've been at the Dole Institute, I found out that our party is pretty dramatically different from the Democrats in that respect. There is there is pretty much uh, a clique of, of men and women, and clique is probably not a bad word, I guess, and you can't say sorority or fraternity because it's co-ed, but there's kind of an informal group of men and women who, uh, who work on almost, almost all the Republican presidential campaigns. And people come and go from that group, and a candidate will always have a few of their own unique people that have been attached to them for various ways. But as you staff up a campaign, on our side of the aisle, one of the big missions of a successful nominee is to immediately reach out and pull in the best people from the other campaigns because a, a national campaign is is huge 
and you got to have a lot of really confident people and you want people who can work with you and who are loyal but you got to have people who have quality too and so you know that's why Lee gave his blessing ultimately for me to go to Dole is he figured he was losing me for now but uh, but you know ultimately if he was successful he'd get back a, a valuable piece of the general election campaign he was right so did you have expectations of a high position in the White House no uh, no, I, um, I, I didn't at all. I really wanted to stay in politics. I wasn't interested in going back to the White House. So, uh, Ronald Reagan had been kind of a labor of love that I'd been interested in ever since he gave the speech in 64, which I'm not sure I saw in 64, but I saw it after 60, as I got older, for Barry Goldwater. But he became somebody that I was really, you know, attached to, and I was never really attached to President Bush in that way. I had a lot of respect for him and all, but um, but it was, no, I really kind of wanted to go back into, into my business, and so I did. So I did four or five campaigns in, in the 90 election cycle. Did that include Dole uh, in the state, or was that 92? No, that was 92. Okay. That was 92. So you were involved in that too? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, uh, I was. I actually worked for the Senate campaign and for the PAC at that time. And uh, for the Senate campaign, I was just kind of. Uh, Joanne called me up one day and said the senator would like for you just to go out. Mike Glasner is going to run the campaign. Mike had been a longtime aide to the senator and remained a longtime aide for a long time. Uh, Mike's going to run the campaign, and senator just wants you to go out and. You know, we're not going to have a difficult campaign, but we just want to make sure it stays that way. And so just, you know, go out and work with Mike and do that and spend as much time as you need out there. And then the second part of what he wants you to do for the PAC is there's a good possibility Republicans could pick up both houses of the legislature out there. And we want you to go out and, and, and we want to make some significant investments in these uh, races. And we want you to go out and make sure... We're not just going to give them the money. We want, you, we want you to do like the RNC would do with our money. We want you to go out and figure out the best way to spend the money and then make sure it's spent the right way. So that was my role in 92. I had very, very little contact with the senator that, that year. Um, and he really pretty much stayed out of the campaign where he had meddled quite a bit in the 88 campaign. He really pretty much stayed out of this because he had much bigger fish to fry and because there was never really much of a campaign to it. That's interesting because uh, you say that because I think it was Mike Glasner who told me that they deliberately put uh, a presence uh, in every single county in mm -hmm. the state during that campaign. Mm -hmm. That was so part of the idea of making sure, you know, that nothing happened. I mean, the whole campaign was premised on the notion that Dole should not have a campaign, but that you you don't sit around and, and, and assume that that's going to be the case. Uh, we knew the president was going to have a very difficult uh, re-election campaign. And um, we knew that he had some issues that he was going to have to deal with. And we just wanted to insulate Bob Dole from that. In, in retrospect, there's no way Dole could have lost in 92 anyway. His defining campaign was 74, and he would have stayed in the Senate for as long as he wanted to. But... Uh, our mission was just to make sure. So Glasner really worked hard, and we did that. We ran television. We ran it like it was a real campaign. So I don't want to misconvey anything. The idea was to make sure it never became a real campaign, but we did that by running as if it were. 
looking back at Dole's attitude in 92, uh, and with him not necessarily being the presidential candidate in 96, do you think he would have run again in 98? Do I think he would have run the? I never asked him that question. I'm sure Rick did in his interview. I would have been astounded if he would not have run for election in '98, um, because I assume. Now, are you are you saying if he had not stepped down as senator or as as the leader? No, no. Let me ask it in an entirely different way. From Dole's perspective in '92, was he engaged in his last run for the Senate or not? I wasn't aware if he was, and I would have been surprised if he was thinking that way. Um, I think he very reluctantly, and you've, you've interviewed Scott Reed and others, I think he very reluctantly decided to step down from that in 96, and I, that reluctance indicates to me that he probably would have run again in 98, but I'd, I'd never discuss that with Bob Dole. It's a great question, though. Um, so anything else? going on in your life uh, between 92 and 96 that we ought to cover? Uh, the only thing is that, that is uh, directly relevant to the Dole Institute is that I was selected as a fellow at the uh, uh, Harvard uh, Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School of Government in early 91. And I only mentioned that because uh, that really more than anything, well, that really prepared me for this job, and it really, when I got the call about this job, I immediately had a context and, and quickly developed a vision for what I wanted to do with this job because I had been there and seen what I consider the gold standard of political institutes operate. So, so that was an interesting experience, but that really has nothing to do with Bob Dole, but it does have a lot to do with his, his institute here. How long were you was that Harvard I was program? a fellow at, for one semester. That's the, the standard length there. So how did you get involved then in the 96 campaign? Well, I'd done Fred Thompson's race in, in 94, and Fred, because he was filling, filling Vice President Gore's unexpired term, it was a technically a special election in 1994, he was sworn into the Senate immediately after his election. Uh, and uh, President Clinton was making a speech, I believe it was on the budget, and Dole's office Sometimes Dole would call you and talk to you. He, 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 he talked, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this ad infinitum, he would talk to thousands of people because he wanted to always be out touching base and he always wanted to get different perspectives and he always wanted to make sure he was getting the right word from his staff and the people who were close to him. And I don't recall if he called me or not, it was probably Joanne or somebody, but, and said, hey, you know, uh, the senator was just thinking, uh, what do you think about Fred Thompson doing the response to uh, uh, to uh, to President Clinton? You know, he'll he will have been sworn in at that point and everything. And so, I talked for. I said that'd be as far as I'm concerned a ten strike. He said, and they said, well, we'll have uh, you know the senator call and ask. And I gave Fred a heads up, and of course he was honored to be picked. And so I had stayed in touch with Dole, and I think that those of us who had been involved previously uh, had a presumption that he would uh, uh, most likely run in, in 96. And so at the end of 94, a small group of us started meeting at the end of November, probably, maybe mid-November, uh, 
and kind of like talking it through what we needed to do and everything. And then we started meeting with him. And, um, you know, I had a student come up to me one day here and say, why did you, why did Bob Dole run against Bill Clinton? I mean, he got clobbered. Clinton was extraordinarily popular. Um, I mean, why would you guys even do that? And I, I, I said at the time, well, at the end of 94, Bill Clinton had, had suffered the most devastating congressional election, along with Watergate, that I had ever witnessed in, in my political career. And he was extraordinarily unpopular. He was viewed as being way out of touch and liberal. And his job rating was hor horrible. I said, so at the time, Bob Dole decided to get in the race. It was the absolute rational, logical decision to make. And so that's, it started up at the end of 94. And as I recall, now I'm going to be relying a lot on on uh, Bob Woodward's Woodward's book. book is generally, with a couple of exceptions, spot on. Okay, I want to. I want you to t talk about the exceptions, um, but uh, you. I got the sense that you were preparing material for Bob Dole, and most. What was sort of essential to that was trying to steer him away from the mistakes of the past. Yeah, um, and and you know I, I wish I had some of the materials, you know, and they probably are down in the archives somewhere. I should probably go down there and poke around sometime on the 88 campaign and see what we have. Yeah, I was very concerned. I gave him a memo, and I don't even remember it now. And, you know, maybe if we do a second one of these, I can try to find some of this and look over and prepare better. I should have prepared better for today. But um, I remember giving him a memo that kind of outlined the four or five things, I forget what they were at this point, that were real, you know, potential issues that he needed to think through before he made the decision to run. Uh, and you might need to prompt me because I guess actually I could have reread Bob's book last night and would have known all of this because he he worked very hard on that book and uh, we cooperated very closely with him. Well, one thing I remember is you, um, and I thought this was really interesting, you compared a baseball team to a football team? I think I compared a baseball team to a basketball team. Uh, I thought. Well, maybe so. <laughs> I thought so because, uh, um, and and I said, you know, and and I'm trying to remember the the, the analogy I made, Brian. Again, this is all kind of uh, groggy at this point. I could have sworn it was baseball and basketball, or maybe football and basketball. And the reason that I was trying to say, you know, when one there's total chaos, a basketball game doesn't really have a plan doesn't really, it kind of develops its own flow and you let the people determine it. And I said in a political campaign needs to work more like the other one, and maybe it was football and basketball. Um, it needs to be a little bit more planned out. You know, in a football game you have a game plan, you know the other team's tendencies, you kind of uh, assign, uh, you know, people to do things. I, I would like to go back and read that before I answer that question because I clearly You've clearly caught me on a day when I don't, I'm not prepared for all that. You're going deeper than I thought on the campaign oh, stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, well, another thing that I picked up there was uh, your having um, encouraged Dole to take a more moderate line of thought. And uh, Mary Massing just said, no, absolutely not. Does that ring a bell? I think there was. I think there was a. I think there was a 
fundamental disagreement all along on exactly how to approach things. And, and I'm not sure that Mari and I were totally in opposition over this, although as Scott Reed and I got deeper into the campaign, he and a lot of the people he had gathered into the campaign and I did have a funda very fundamental disagreement on that. I think my view, Brian, was let Dole, you know, not, not let Dole be Dole, which is the way that a lot of people had always felt you should do it, and not let's reinvent Bob Dole, but rather let's um, uh, take Bob Dole and let's uh, look at his record in a rigorous, systematic way. Let's find out where he's been on all these important issues, and let's make sure people are aware of that. Because he does, as I said at the outset when we first started talking, he may not be perceived as a conservative movement type, but if you look where he comes down, it's almost always on the conservative side. And so what I did is I began a systematic plan working through Sheila Burke and her folks in the majority leader's office, a systematic plan going through a series of issues that were critical according to our survey research and finding out precisely what his record was on those issues so that we could emphasize those issues without kind of shifting him, you know, around and, 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 and changing his personality and changing his style. And I'm not sure that I remember that Mari and I were the ones who really had the clashes on that. Now, she and I always had different, maybe, definitions of how to do things, but I think directionally I thought we were closer than that as I remember it. Mm -hmm. So who were you having clashes with? Well, I didn't have clashes with anybody at the outset, but very clearly by early 96. Um, it wasn't personally with Scott, but it very clearly um, um, he apparently had lost confidence in our polling firm, did not like the media people. Those, those folks were right directly under my control. Uh, I absolutely uh, thought they were the best and thought getting rid of them was a mistake. Um, and so the, the, they're, they're kind of, the campaign kind of split into two camps. And there was, you know, kind of my wing of it, and then there were three, I would say. And then there was kind of Scott and his people, and then there's kind of like everybody else. And I think Scott's folks convinced him that it was going to ultimately split and it was going to be him or me and that he needed to make the first move. And I think he saw his opportunity. And, and he took it, and I, didn't, frankly, never took it personally. And he's a contributor to the Dole Institute, and, and I wouldn't say that we're best of friends, but I've had him out for programs and get along fine with him. So, but it was, you know, it was pretty, it's pretty bitter at the time. What happened to the uh, the Vulcans uh, in in '96? Where 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 were they? The Vulcans, the, the, the oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> well, uh, there was a lot of the people in the 88 campaign uh, were not part of the 96 campaign. Some of that was conscious on Scott's part. Uh, some of it was, frankly, we wanted, and I advised Scott at different times, try to get different people around because if you bring in the same old crowd, you'll, you'll fall into the let dole be dole mentality. And I said, I think there's a middle ground here that you can make work strategically without modifying who he is, letting him stay true to himself, but at the same time um, making sure that we don't, you know, get the same people and the same, create a perception that the people who, you know, who, who um, drove his, uh, his uh, 88 uh, campaign plan into the ditch or driving his 90, 96 plan into the ditch. 
Uh, so there, there was a lot of that. I don't know that people were consciously cut out, um, but there was clearly, there was concern about not, there was concern about not just getting the people who had done it before back in the exact same places, but getting the best people for the job. And um, from the outset, I had just been through Fred's race, had actually moved to Tennessee and run it. I did not want management of the campaign. I'm sure I could have had it. Uh, and in retrospect, it would have changed a lot of things, but I would have been unhappy with it and frankly wouldn't have done that good of a job. So I was the one who said we need a campaign manager and I will serve as deputy chairman for strategy, media, and, and, um, and polling. And so that was the way we structured it. And so ultimately that structure was probably, probably flawed. I should have probably had Scott reporting to me, which I probably could have done at the outset. Uh, but uh, uh, I didn't want that day-to-day -day, uh, pounding that a campaign manager takes, which I just went through for six months and it almost killed me with Fred Thompson's campaign. I didn't want to put myself through that pounding because I'd just been through it for several months and um, wasn't prepared to do that, but also felt an obligation and a desire to be part of it. I'm just trying to relate an element of the 88 campaign to the 96, the, the pre-Brock people, and I know we've talked to some of them who have recollections of going up and working in New Hampshire, for example, really strongly for, for Dole and whatnot. Where was that element in 96? I mean, it was really no place. I mean, there was no, like I said, I mean, there was a conscious discussion about, okay, you know, does everybody just kind of like automatically get a job? There were people who worked in the 88 campaign who I wouldn't want to hire for the 96 race. Dole was a front runner in 96. Dole was entitled, and, and I, I offended friends too, and I'm sure some of them have addressed this, uh, and um, uh, I felt Dole was entitled to the best that we could get. The 88 campaign, we had a lot of good, energetic, loyal young people, but they were not the best. They were the best we could get at the time, but we were not the front-running campaign, and there were a lot of other people getting talented folks out there. And so I said from the outset, um, and I think most people agreed with me, that let's get the best people that we can get for this campaign. Because I felt we, that we had that obligation to Bob Dole. Um, what are the exceptions uh, you feel, where, where did Bob Woodward not characterize the 96? Oh, they were very minor things. I'm not even worth talking about, Brian. I think one time he called me the deputy campaign manager when I was actually the deputy chairman and, you know, very little piddly things. Uh, there were a couple of other places began. I, I didn't reread his book, so I don't remember. I think he probably got 98% of that right, and I thought that, uh, I thought that along with uh, Richard Ben Kramer's book, What It Takes on the 88 Election, is probably the, the single best, um, um, most accurate, I will say, uh, that I can personally, and of course I can personally vouch for that, but it was a highly accurate portrayal of what was going on in the campaign. So I, I think, you know, I, we, we could be talking about the Hollywood speech and the Philadelphia speech and whatnot, but I think it, it, it's not a, a good use of our time, probably. Yeah. Unless you want to come back and do some more. Right. I'll leave right. that up to you. Um, a, few, uh, a, a few sort of um, things that are of interest. Um, you said that you thought Dole was an intuitive, not an intellectual con conservative. Mm -hmm. um, expand a little bit on that. 
Um, I think that a, a, a person who is a movement conservative approaches everything with a certain set of principles, which, and this is true of any ideologue, uh, which, you know, I would call them principles. Some, of them might, some people might say they're preconceived notions. But it's kind of a set of ideas of how you judge things and would generally come to a conclusion about a particular issue based upon that set. Uh, I think Bob Dole had a set of core values, but I don't think those core values were the same as, 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 as an intellectual conservative would say. But the reason I say he was an intuitive conservative is he always, he would land on his feet on the conservative side of most issues. And I think it's more or less because as he thought through, that was his common sense position more than it related to any historical or, or, um, uh, or philosophical point. It was more like this seems to be the best solution. I'd say he's more of a pragmatist. And this thought struck but, me. But I should also, and excuse me for interrupting, I should really make clear, very, very, and this is what we tried to convey in 96, if you looked at his votes over, at that point, 36 years of Congress, he was remarkably consistent as a conservative. There were deviations, but if you looked at the whole body of work, you know, he was an 88, 92% conservative. And... Um, what I always failed to convey inside the 96 campaign was this is your message. This is it. The man has a proven track record. He's shown over the years that he is a conservative and that he's the right choice for this. And um, so that, that was the point. I, was, I wanted to add that in because he had strong core values that always motivated and moved him. But it's also true that one of the reasons why it's harder probably for a legislator to um, run for president than for a governor, say, uh, is because you have this long history oh, yeah. of votes, and the opposition can always find a day when you sure. appear to Absolutely. vote the wrong side. And flip-flop. Sure. Sure. No so doubt. there's a liability there. No doubt. Oh, yeah. It's a liability. If you could show, if there's a way to show the context... You know, I would say Dole would be in great shape, but you can't show context of a 36-year in Congress in a 10-second soundbite or a 30-second TV ad or even a four-page direct mail piece. I think there's one other liability, though, that exists for legislative candidates running for president. When I say legislative, I mean Senate or House. I think after they've been there a long time, they, they learn that there is, like almost everything else, oral history, running the Dole Institute, whatever, there is a lingo that goes along with uh, being there every day and doing business there every day. And that lingo um, is, is not the way that you communicate with the average person on the street. And so I think that makes it very challenging for, for, for those folks as well. I think you're going to see, you know, we're going to see something very unique. I don't, I'm trying to remember the last time that, that two individuals with no, technically no executive experience have been the, their party's major, the, two, the major party nominations to be president. So it's going to be fun to see how this one turns out. But I will say about both McCain and Obama, you know, they haven't been in the leadership. They, McCain has been there quite a long time, but has never been in the leadership. Obama, I don't believe, has, has been in the leadership. And so they haven't kind of gotten absorbed into the, into, um, into the whole business of doing business in Congress like, you know, 
a leader would be. That may be a plus for him in, a, in some respect. Yeah, but when, yeah. Um, you also said that, um, I, I, I was intrigued by this, that uh, Dole was a meddler, not a micromanager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think this was when you were giving advice to Scott Reed when he mm -hmm. was coming on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a distinct difference there. Bob Dole would never tell somebody, "I want you to do this, 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 and this." Um, he he was far too busy to go to that level. And frankly, most of the people he had around him, not all of them, but most of the people that he had around him were pretty competent, pretty hardworking people who were in most cases, you know, pretty loyal to the guy as well. What he did do is he did kind of like cast seeds of doubt at times and he would kind of like look around and say, well, you know, I asked somebody, well, is he doing this right? And what happened is that in his world often he would, I think unintentionally, not intentionally, unintentionally sowed seeds of doubt in people and create issues where issues should not be created. He might ask somebody, well, what do you think about the job they're doing over in the campaign? What do you think about this? And uh, Do you think that's the right approach? And his, he's just, he always, that's his style, and it's the style that made him such a successful leader was to consult lots of people. But if you look at guys who are elected president, generally speaking, they've got one or a small cadre of individuals around them that, in effect, they listen to them on virtually everything. Uh, as it relates to the campaign, not the world, but the campaign. And I basically felt that, that Senator Dole would be far better served if he had three or four strong people around him and if he didn't really sign it, go, go out, because a lot of times he would ask people their opinion on things who had no background or no experience whatsoever in politics or a campaign. But he might respect their opinion on agricultural issues and might say, well, what do you think about the campaign in Iowa? And then, you know, if the person has any kind of a personal agenda, you know, you create problems that way. And that person's expressions would have an effect on the senator. Yeah, they, they affect his confidence in the team. And, you know, a lot of this goes back to, this isn't magic, this is people working together and developing some kind of chemistry. And eventually I felt if he was going to be successful in 96, he was going to have to turn the campaign over to the campaign, and he was going to have to lead, but he was going to have to be a more traditional candidate in the sense that uh, he was going to have to do some things differently. Did he get there? Uh, he got a long way, uh, a real long way. And uh, um, I remember, you know, like practicing the announcement speech and preparing it and in all kinds of ways, doing the Hollywood speech, which is really amazing in retrospect and it's quite a story. Uh, yeah, I think he got there in many, many ways. I think that unfortunately a couple things happened along the way. Number one, Steve Forbes chose to really, uh, and, and I don't say this about Mr. Forbes personally, I, I say it about his campaign, but ultimately a candidate's got to accept responsibility for what their campaign does. The Forbes campaign really savaged uh, Bob Dole in the early primary states. And uh, there was one situation, I remember doing a focus group in Arizona where Forbes had spent millions of advertising. And you go into it, you know, being pretty objective about things because you're never successful in politics if you're not pretty objective about stuff. You go into it thinking out loud, well, it's going to be interesting to see how his TV ads have affected things. And you go and you sit there and you hear people say like, 
who the hell is Bob Dole to think he should be president? He's not a good Republican at all. He's terrible. He, might, he should be a Democrat. We need a hero. We need a real American like Steve Forbes. I mean, you hear stuff like that and you wonder, oh my gosh. You know, how can, you know, has it gotten to the stage where, uh, and this was really quite disillusioning because I didn't believe in any campaign I worked with, my role was to fool the people. I thought my role was to inform and give them reasons to be for my guy. But to sit there listening, you know, to, to, to Bob Dole being compared to Steve Forbes that way was, uh, that was quite remarkable and eye-opening. So in essence, what he did by uh, using huge amounts of personal money is he created a horribly negative environment in those first few primary states for Bob Dole and made it very, po made it very possible for Dole to lose the nomination by losing a string of states. Um, uh, and, and, but ultimately, I still felt all along Dole would win because once they got out of those early states, he couldn't, he couldn't damage him with the news media. They were, they were raising all kinds of electability questions, but you could never damage Dole's character with him, not a guy like Forbes. And, um, uh, but uh, I knew that Dole would still be the nominee, regardless of all this, if they just stuck to the plan and everything. And um, uh, the second thing that happened to Dole that ultimately derailed him in 96 is Bill Clinton, you know became the brilliant politician and communicator that we all now know he was and um, learned how to triangulate with the Democrats and the Republicans and the Republicans turned him into a very good president and uh, you know they passed welfare reform, balanced the budget and basically came up with a record for him to run on in 96 that any Republican almost would be proud of and from at least 95, 96, not 93 and 94 and that, that derailed the whole. Um, you wanted to talk about the con contact with Dole after the 96 campaign, so. Yeah, in 1997, I had gone in 96 after leaving, uh, my dad had been trying to get me to go into the family business for quite some time, so after leaving um, uh, the campaign in 96, I took about three months off and then I joined dad's company, our, our family company, and actually located, relocated out in, here in Johnson County, Kansas, which our, one of our factories was just a little bit, about 20 minutes north of where we lived in, in Wyandotte County. And we had four or five places I could have moved, but I'd spent a lot of time out here and thought we'd really enjoy living out here. My wife came out with me. We checked it out for a few days. She really liked the place, and uh, uh, so we moved out here. And so I based my operations out of this company in, in, up in uh, Edwardsville in Wyandotte County. And one day Joanne Coe called me and said, uh, the senator... Uh, would like to come down and tour your plant. And I said, well, I would love to have the senator do that, Joanne, but I can't really imagine any reason that Bob Dole would want to come down here and look at a candy plant. And she said to me in so many words, you idiot, he doesn't really want to see your plant. He wants to come see you. And um, he came down he did the perfunctory tour, and then he said, can, can we spend some time in your office? And so we went into my office and shut the door and sat down. And basically he looked across the table at me, the desk at me, and he said, I just want to make sure that you and I are personally okay. 
I said, Senator, you were okay with me the day after this happened. This was never a problem between you and me. And I just thought that was remarkable, that he had come personally all that way to say that. And I just found that to be amazing. Totally mind-boggling. I'd also, though, add something that happened is right after the campaign, like the day after the campaign, um, he called to say, well, he said, I'm sorry it's turned out this way. He says, are you going to be okay? I said, I'm going to be fine. He said, I'd really appreciate it if you don't go out and, you know, say anything about me. I said, Senator, the problem is not me and you. You know, it's not never been me and you. And um, he said, okay. I said, by the way, he said, you write this down. You're going to be the Republican nominee. They have told you that you're in serious trouble. The media believes you're in serious trouble. Your own campaign is leaked that you're in serious trouble to allow them to make this change, get rid of me and my folks. I said, but you're going to win the nomination because once you get outside these early states, you're going to be untouchable. He can't go in and he doesn't have enough personal money to go in or he's not going to spend enough personal money to go in and do to you what he did to you in these early states. And he said, was there anything else that I should know about? And I said, yeah, they've they spent too much, way too much money. They've hired too many people. And, and this is funny because it goes back to 80, 88 where I got supplanted because I had not spent enough money in the Brock people's eyes. In my eyes, you know, we're in the opposite situation. I'd been supplanted this time because, not because we'd spent too much, but the people who were in charge who supplanted me had really spent all of his money at that point. So they had a struggle from that point forward. And now tell us about the ride to Kansas City. Uh, it was actually a ride from Kansas City to Overland Park last April, which would have been um, uh, 2007. You know, I've checked the chronology on this, Brian, but it may have been 2006. I just can't recall. It probably was 2006. He came to Kansas City to give a speech, and he did not have time because of his uh, flights and his speech and all to come out to the Institute. But I needed to see him, so I went. He, he invited me to come down for coffee, so I went down to his hotel and, um, um, and, 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 and saw him. And he had had, you know, a, a near-death experience in, in 2005 when he had had his hip replacement, and then he fell and had the brain damage and everything, and all that was recounted in one soldier's story. Uh, and so he was a lot better than he was then, but still looking a little bit frail, a lot more frail than he does today. And, um, and we met for about an hour, had coffee. He told me to eat some breakfast if I wanted some. And about halfway through, two of his, his two travel assistants walked in very casually dressed, like wearing shorts and T-shirts. He says, I, you know, so-and-so and so-so, Lana and Sean, I think. He says, you know, Lana and Sean, they're going to, after we finish here, they're going to go down to the plaza and go shopping, and you and I are going to go out and see some voters in Kansas. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, hmm, this is really interesting. Now, you got to picture this because I had worked for Dole at this point at the Institute and in his campaigns and at Campaign America for years and knew him very well. But never once in my life had he and I gone out someplace by ourselves. You know, Mike Glasner was almost always with him on the campaigns and anywhere he went. And so Mike Glasner was always responsible for, for getting him around. And 
everybody knows, Bob Dolewell knows that he's basically in constant pain. He has no use of his, his right arm and, and very limited use of his left. And so I'm sitting there thinking that I've driven my little tiny car. As I had pulled into his hotel, I realized that my gas is almost on empty. Okay. I'm in this little car, and he is a really big guy. And, uh, well, it was hilarious because, so he says to me, we're going to go down and see voters. So we finish our meetings, and he says, I say, where do you want to go? And he says, I want to go to Kansas City, Kansas. I said, Senator, I know where it is, but I don't know how to get here, to get there from here. I said, I can't visualize how to, how to make that happen in an efficient way because he had limited time. He said, all you do is go across the bridge. I said, what bridge, Senator? He says, the bridge over there. I said, do you know which bridge, Senator? And I says, we'll ask somebody. They'll know. So we went and asked somebody, and they didn't have a clue which bridge it was. He says, uh, well, where, else, where can you take me? I said, what if we go to Overland Park? I said, okay, let's go down to Overland Park. You can take me into some banks and stuff. So we drove down. Um, you know, I like spread the seat out as far as I could in the car and drove him down to Overland Park. Said, Senator, I'm going to have to stop and get gas at some point, which eventually I did. And um, he, um, we stopped, and he'd get out and go in, and I'd go in with him. He'd shake hands, say hello, and people would just come up and swarm him and everything. And we did two or three of the banks. They were a little bit awkward. It just, it, there was no flow to it. And so I realized something hit me, and you know, I'd never, I have never done advance work in my entire life, so I wasn't trained as an advance guy. If Mike had been there, um, Mike would have known exactly what to do, you know, and all I had to do was provide the car and hang out with him. But, um, but I'd never thought about, it. I'd never conceived of doing stuff that way. And but I thought something hit me. I had an inspiration. It was like a an inspiration from a guy like Mike Glasner or Jim Hooley who did advance for the 96 campaign and I knew from the, the Reagan White House and all. It's like all of a sudden I remember this, there's this place called Old Town Overland Park, which is just down the road, which are a bunch of old-fashioned retail storefronts. So I said, Senator, do you remember uh, Old Town Overland Park? He said, yeah, I think so. I said, why don't we go there down there because I think we can get you out of the car and you can just circulate through the downtown area there and rather than stopping and piecemeal hitting. So we went out and we walked that area. It's probably about a mile, I would guess, uh, in about an hour. And it was really incredible because the man was just, he was mobbed. And there weren't that enough people to mob him actually there, but everybody would come up to him and say hello and how are you doing and what are you doing here and, and um uh, uh, he said, well, I'm giving a speech over in Missouri, and I thought the best way to give a speech over in Missouri is to come over and see some people in Kansas and get me all fired up to go over there and give a speech. And I remember at one point we went in this coffee shop, and there were, there were two kids in there with, you know, long hair and body piercings and tattoos, and they knew who he was. And um, we went in to, uh, uh, there were these guys who were putting together, there was a furniture store, these guys were putting together uh, uh, furniture out in front of this furniture store, a couple of African Americans, and they saw him and they said, there's Senator Bob Dole, and they ran over and shook his hand, and we went by this uh, craft store, and this lady said, come in, we want to take your picture with, the, with our quilt, and, and we did all of that, and we finally, 
finally came out and we're getting ready to go. And one of the kids from the coffee shop came running up to us. He said, Senator Dole, he said, Senator Dole, I really hate to bother you with this. But, and he hands him this sheet of paper. He says, you're the most important person I'll ever meet in my life. And this is my passion and something I really am concerned about. And I want to share this with you. And he handed it to Dole. And he said, just if you would look at this website, I'd really appreciate it. And he turned around and left. And it was a website about, uh, you know, uh, children being turned into soldiers in Africa. And um, I, that, it was just, it was a remarkable day. It was kind of like, I know that's the last day I'll be on the campaign trail with Bob Dole because there will never be any more campaigns or everything. I get to see him a lot all the time. But to go out for like an hour and a half and two hours and go around and see the old magic nearly, what, ten years later, still at work. Just an incredible guy. The retail politician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot more than that, though. It's, you know, who he was and what he stood for and everything. Right, right. Well, it's after 5 o'clock. Okay. Should we bring this to a close? Yep. And do you want to do some more tomorrow or not? Lawrence, no. we can shut it down.